Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns. This is episode number 186. 186. And uh, in case you have any questions or comments for us, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. So, uh, here we are in the throes of the Christmas season, and, and, you know, I think everybody, it's, it's been a very cautious Christmas for most people, I think. Uh, the, the more you look at the, uh, the kind of the goings-on in Washington, now apparently we have a homosexual sex tape uh, that's been made in the chamber of the Senate which some people are saying isn't a big deal. Eh, this is just not a big deal. You know, hey, it is what it is. It's not a big deal. Um, leaving the, the sexuality and all that apart, hey, it is a big deal. Because now it's another sign of the decay that has just been... We're living in an old barn that's about to fall down. And the decay is knocking the barn down. And there needs to be some serious work to rebuild some of the institutions of the country. This is this is just a disgrace. Um, I absolutely think that you know somebody should should really lose their position and their job over it. Apparently, it's some some old geezer senator who's retiring. It was his chief of staff who was. I guess the person making the tape and and then that person says hey you're all homophobic you're attacking me and you know it just it's this it's this almost this ancient Rome decay of just what's right having any kind of moral standard any kind of behavioral standard um, this is just terrible and yet this is what we live in and, and it's you see it everywhere in the in the country, remember the, remember the, I don't know what it is, cross-dresser, transvestite, transsexual, whatever that person was that was stealing the clothes, the guy who was in charge of the country's nuclear waste, and somehow, it was born a guy, but somehow dresses up like a woman and everything else, and Biden thought, this is a genius that I'll put in charge of our nuclear waste, and they found out this guy was stealing women's luggage out of uh, out of airports in order to get I guess clothes to wear that I mean who's ever heard of that and if you did you would say that's the sickest stuff I've ever heard of that is sick and you know the, these people are just now propagating all over uh, for everyone they catch be advised there's dozens more uh, they found what was it I can't remember if it was an army colonel or an army general who was wearing uh, his dress uniform with the decorations and campaign medals of his nation, wearing his nation's uniform, and he was wearing an S&M dog mask with that. Absolutely disgraceful. And uh, people think that that kind of stuff is just cute. You know, when I was wearing a uniform, and actually I'm still authorized to wear a few things on certain days, like Veterans Day and Memorial Day and all that, I do not wear, I did not wear my uniform. I wore my nation's uniform. That uniform doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the nation. And I happen to be the first person who's fortunate enough to don it and to have it uh, to be the caretaker of it. Same thing with a decoration. Um, when you have a decoration or a special skill badge or some combat award, it's not yours. It is your nation's and you are the person who it's been conferred to as its keeper and its representative. So, you know, it goes on and on and on. You see, this kind of behavior has spread. Look at look at what's on college campuses. Did you ever think, would you have ever thought 
in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, that Jewish students would be afraid to move on a campus in America. You know, they'd be afraid. They're afraid for their own physical safety. You know, this is this is just the modern version of Kristallnacht. These liberal radicalized Nazis have have basically taken over our college campuses for the most part. Now I realize there's some that they haven't. And people can say, well, it's just a few. It's just these Ivy League schools. I'm telling you it's everywhere. To some degree or another. It may not be overwhelming on a lot of campuses, but it is there. And I've one of the things I've said in my tirades is there is a radicalized leftist movement which is potentially arming itself and I go back and and they're not doing this because they're firearms enthusiasts or they like samurai swords or they do any of the rest of this they like this and they're arming themselves because they are planning to use it against you and it goes back to Barack Hussein Obama saying in 2006 which he quote you can't really find anymore you have to really dig around but there should be a civilian defense force that's just as well armed as the police and the military now if your police and military are fair and doing a good job which ours do you don't need a civilian defense force the only reason you need it is to attack people who don't agree with you and that's what this that's what this is about uh, make no mistake uh, these people are out there you saw it in you, you saw film of it in the Rittenhouse thing and and even our broken decaying court system couldn't pin it on this guy Rittenhouse couldn't pin it on him they wanted to they kept him in jail for six or eight months and all the rest of it but the fact of the matter is um, he didn't do anything wrong people were trying to kill him and he defended himself and he defend and they caught that one guy that he shot was lying on the lying on the witness stand and they had the film which proved it which that cinched up the case uh, when that guy pulled the, the gun and was pointing it at Rittenhouse Rittenhouse sees it turns the gun on the guy and then you know shoots him in the arm that that had to hurt <laughs> and I hope it hurts that guy every day afterwards <clears throat> these people are crazy they believe crazy things they believe Trump is a Nazi and he's gonna exterminate you know whatever group you want to throw in there that's crazy they believe there should be no borders that's crazy they they believe that everybody who has something has gotten it due to privilege and that the entire group of, of people in this country who have any kind of wealth or any kind of thing and they exclude certain groups from that uh, they will never say Michael Jordan is a very rich man because of privilege they'll, they'll never say that. oh no no that's not it that somehow privilege came with his position as a basketball oh no 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 they'll never say that but if you're just a working person you and your spouse both work and produce an income and have a decent life hey you're you're privileged man and and what you have needs to be a portion of that a large portion of that needs to be taken away and divided up among others and the government's good at doing that that's the whole tax system you know the tax system needs to be completely destroyed and built built again because it's 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 absolutely confiscatory 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 they confiscate your wealth your hard work and they distribute it to people who it doesn't belong to because they feel sorry for them many ways I don't feel sorry for them there are certain people who cannot work and I get that there's also people 
who were out selling drugs, uh, getting into all kinds of trouble, committing crime, doing all sorts of things. And what they have done, they didn't go to school, didn't do anything, and now they think they deserve a piece of what you stayed out of trouble, went to school, and built a decent career and became something. That that's all, that somehow what you've done belongs to them. At least a part of it. That's That can't go. The anti-Semitism is really scary, though. That is really scary. Because that can be turned on any... <clears throat> number one, that can be turned on any group. Number two, American college students do not form Israeli government policy. So, you know, if you disagree with that policy, you're taking it out on exactly the wrong people just because of their ethnicity. Really? That's... Hmm. If you put other groups in there, that would be... That would be really something. That's something that I don't think that they would really want to uh, advertise or go with. Okay, the, uh, the next part of it is... You know, we have this curse that we now have to live with. It's, I don't know, I just call it, they, they call it DEI. Even the place where I work has this DEI department. And they send out this garbage. Um, you know, and I, I'm not, I can't go, I could refute it point by point and tell you how mentally bankrupt it really is. But what they, what they, the, the upshot of this all is, is that how you determine the success of your company, your department, your office, whatever it is, is by the number of different colored and different speaking people you have in it. Not who's doing the best job, not results. This is another way of getting rid of results. And face it, that is, you know, most, most places don't put up with that. They don't do that in the NFL only thing that counts is results. They don't care who you are, what you look like. If you can kick a 60 or 70 yard field goal, you're going to get a job as a field goal kicker, no matter what you look like. If you can throw the long bombs, read the defenses, and play quarterback better than anybody else, you're going to get the job of quarterback. Doesn't matter what you look like. That's what we're where we should be. If you have your best people, if you're, if if the best people have the job, the most qualified, best performing people have a job, you will have what I call natural DEI. You will have the diversity that that's there. You will have it. Uh, but giving someone a job they don't deserve just because of what they look like or what their accent is, is wrong. It's absolutely wrong. and Or what their gender is. That's the other part. Uh, we are now seeing just the dismemberment of the institutions inside the U.S. military. Okay. I, I saw the little news snippet. First woman graduates from sniper school. Okay, you know, that's, that's great. Hooray for you. But as a person with some inside baseball knowledge of the first women that went to U.S. Army Ranger School and how they were favored and how if they had been male they would have been dropped from the course I just wonder if this is the same thing and now people can say hey look now go back into history um, you know the Russian or the Soviet army used women snipers they did and they took a much higher casualty rate than the male snipers did also sniping back then was a different business um, you, you weren't shooting at long-range targets. You weren't doing a lot of things. They were really kind of designated marksmen. And they, you know, the Soviet Army flooded the ranks with designated marksmen. They were also not above inflating achievements for propaganda purposes. And, you know, so whenever you see a Soviet statistic of how well they did, 
uh, you have to take it with a grain of salt because all governments put out wartime propaganda. You know, I'm not saying that's evil. I'm not saying that that's something inherently bad that they were doing. It was just for propaganda purposes. I, I will tell you that I would be very surprised. Most people don't know what snipers are. A sniper is an observer, a scout, and a whole bunch of other things. The marksmanship part is not the most difficult part of it. It's the field craft, the getting around undetected, um, building the sniper hides, and all these kind of things that people have to do to be snipers. And, and I will say that I would just be willing to wager that a lot of those blocks were just checked to 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 for a pass because that is a very difficult part of the school very difficult things to do now there are great female uh marksmen i mean they they, they find them they can shoot they can but you even look at something like the national matches look at all these things and What's the percentage of women who are actually doing this? And it's actually quite low. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. Everything from equipment to, you know, training to upper body strength to, you know, all kinds of things like that. But I, I will also say that, you know, you're just not going to find female snipers in peacetime. You can fight. You can do what the what the, the Russians never put anybody through. The Soviet Union, the Soviet Army, did not put anybody through a rigorous sniping program. If they saw somebody was a decent marksman, they handed them a sniper rifle. They made hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of sniper rifles. And we know this because number one, they're not rare today. They're they're actually fairly simple. Easy, probably the easiest sniper rifle to find is a World War II Soviet sniper rifle. The other thing too is we know that they converted some of they had so many, much more than they would ever need, that they converted some of them back into just regular rifles. So um, they were handing them out to anybody who could have them. So that's that's what it is. I'm not trying to belittle anybody. I'm just saying there's reality here. When you start, when you start and say, "Here's a course, and here's what we determine the standards are," and then saying, "Well, now we need to let a whole bunch of other people in here, so we're going to push them in, and while we're doing that, we're going to revise the standards so these people we put in can pass." That's what's happening, and uh, frankly, it's it needs to stop. It needs to stop. At some point, uh, we may look at the Gaza deal as something that we have to do somewhere. And where that'll be, I don't know. But I can give you potentialities. I can tell you, Mexico, we might have to go down and fight drug cartels. We might have to fight another regional power for over a place like Taiwan, Japan, or South Korea. All these things have always been out there. Uh, we might have to be called to the defense of NATO. You never know. And that's not even touching on the kind of complicated relations and commitments we've made in the Middle East. Could be fighting a country like Iran helping an ally, Saudi Arabia. Do we really like the Saudis that much? Well, we like their oil, so <laughs> that makes them our friends. So it, it, we can't just keep destroying an institution just so that we can feel good about it. Just so that we can look in there and see the cute little blonde girl sniper, the, you know, the tomboy army ranger, the all the rest of this the the little the little gal who's the M1 tank mechanic i mean we can't we can't let 
results suffer because we just want to have this little everybody wins participation trophy military that people feel good about you know remember how everybody was all upset about participation trophies like 15 20 years ago well and now it's the same way there's a partition a participation trophy for anything and it's gotten into the military now so there we are We've got real trouble real real trouble and that's enough of that uh let me do my uh rolling block update if you've listened to the past couple of episodes you know i purchased a 5070 rolling block with a complicated history i guess but it's it's really a fun rifle really i I really enjoy it really like it the only thing i did not like about it was it had the what i you know and i didn't really notice it when i purchased it i function tested it and everything but when i went to actually fire it the first time it was very difficult to uh, fire because it had such a heavy trigger pull. It was like 18, 20 pounds maybe. Um, so I thought there was something immediately wrong with it. I um, consulted some experts who told me, hey, it's a military rolling block. They're all that way. It's, it was kind of a passive safety measure they put into these things. So I'm like, oh, hmm. So, I was like, well, what's the fix? And the fix is, well, there's a place called Remington Rolling Block Parts, uh, run by uh, Mr. Womack. I think it's Keith Womack. Um, He sells a little piano, or, yeah, I guess it's a little piano wire uh, shaped spring with a, with with the little screw, with the screw that, that puts it in there, holds it in there. And it's like, it's like 20 bucks. You know, and it's a, it's an easy fix. Uh, there are some, there is at least one video out there. Maybe there's more. Hey, you can take a hacksaw blade, and if you have the equipment, a grinder and a few things, you can shape uh, a piece of a hacksaw blade to to replace the spring and kind of get, get into one that way. Um, I don't really have the time to do that, so um, I just basically just took the coward's way out, spent the 20 bucks, put it in, it works great. So I haven't fired it with ammunition yet, but in dry firing, it's a vast improvement. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, go ahead and give that a try in the next week or two. Um, see how that all see how that all shakes out. But it's a way to get it a lot more a lot more shootable. Um, the later rolling block I have, the number five, the seven millimeter Mauser rolling block, I have. Uh, does not have a bad trigger so I did I've never I was quite caught by surprise that this other one was so heavy and that that was endemic to the early uh, uh, military rolling blocks because the later ones they seem to have they seem to have improved it but maybe that just maybe I've just got one with a <laughs> a worn spring you know and it just seems lighter but it works fine so so now both my rolling blocks uh, one is okay to begin with and the other is now happy and and so i'm i'm happy with that so let me do another update the um you know my one of my favorite mauser rifles is the argentine 1891 you know i just i've always thought that when you look at 1891 and you look at the moisin you look at the carcano uh you look at the crag you look at especially the labelle you look at the commission rifle the argentine mauser is in my opinion an outstanding rifle compared to those not that those are bad but it's just a a a great rifle and the thing that has always impressed me was the level of craftsmanship a lot of those rifles on the on the uh, surplus market are in really fine condition, really nice condition, which is amazing. You would think they wouldn't be, but they are. Uh, and and you know maybe that's not surprising because they were later you know replaced by later, very nice rifles, um, 96 and 98 pattern rifles, um, the 1909 Argentine Mauser being being one that uh, 
is really considered one of the best 98 uh, style rifles that there is. But be that as it may, I, I like the 91. If the 91 has got any faults, it's that it's not a controlled feed uh, action, but hey, neither are most actions today. Are Most of them are push feed. So really, it was kind of ahead of its time. I suppose that would be a detriment if you were doing some kind of a combat rule while working the action. Um, I suppose there could be a, a real debit there, but um, that would be such a rare and phenomenal event. I don't think that that <laughs> would matter in the slightest. So, um, you know, it, it's one of those things. The, the only other thing is before the extractor clicks over, if you if you wanted to withdraw the bolt and eject the cartridge, you couldn't do that it would, because the bolt would just go back because and it's not holding or controlling the cartridge. I, again, that would be, I can't think of a place where you'd really want to do that. But um, be that as it may, um, CNR Arsenal, and I actually got a question about them later. They actually did a, a video uh, on the Argentine Mauser, um, and it's really good. One of the things that I learned, um, I thought I knew pretty much most of it, but when it came to the Belgian and Turkish Mausers, which were the same, the eight, 1889 and I guess 1890, uh, they were the same design though, but they were actually made out of um, a lower quality steel. The Argentine ones were made out of a, uh, a new high quality steel, which I did not know, and I thought that was particularly interesting. Um, little fact to find out, which is maybe why they've held up so well over so many years you know just uh, but you can see the the level of manufacture in it they're so well made and and uh, really um, I, I hate to say commercial quality but they were really commercial quality um, outstanding they were just outstanding rifles so um, you know there's a good video out there on it um, I've gotten mine to shoot some coat, some uh, powder-coated bullets, and it's pretty. It's it's a lot of fun. I think it's a great cartridge. Uh, it's like a, a lower power 7.62 NATO, but it's it's really excellent and uh, probably deserved more widespread usage than it's got than it got. It would have been a much better World War One cartridge uh, in both automatic and. Uh, um, infantry rifles in uh, automatic weapons meaning machine guns it would have been a great machine gun cartridge and a great um, infantry rifle cartridge so there you go would have been would have been awesome to have that on the I would rather have that on the uh, western front than a lot of other things I'll tell you that straight up so now we can get to my best and favorite part of the podcast which is questions and answers and of course, as it would happen, somebody asked a rolling block question, but it's not about rifles. It says, do you know about rolling block pistols and why were these adopted? I have to say, I do know about them a little bit. Uh, I think I may have seen one or two. I've never fired one. Um, rolling block pistols came out in the late 1860s and uh, they actually got a the army bought some the navy bought more and they were in kind of a shortened 50 caliber cartridge um, now if you just took a look it's if you were new to guns and somebody said here's the self-contained cartridge that we're gonna put in your new pistol you'd look at that and you say hey that's that's pretty good it's like a 325 grain bullet and it's uh, 50 caliber, and you'd say, yeah, self-contained, that's a pretty good deal. When they showed you the rolling block pistol, you'd probably be a lot less impressed. Um, why a rolling block pistol? Because it's the old quote that's attributed to Albert Einstein, the difference between genius and stupidity is that genius has limits. Um, why would you want a single, as a combat weapon, why would you want a single shot 
pistol when in fact you know uh, it just makes no sense and of course they were relatively unsuccessful um, there were even trapdoor pistols made too I, I think some of those may have been converted from rifle actions you know which I, you know and I don't know I don't know what cartridges the uh, they took I, I would assume that it would be a 45 a cut down 4570. But they found with the 50 caliber rolling block pistols, they didn't really stabilize the bullet very well. Um, one country even copied it, and they had a double barrel rolling block pistol. You know, how's that for doubling down on something worse? You know, when I look at something like that, I would just sit there and say, give me a surplus Remington or Colt um, percussion cap and ball pistol. I'd rather have that. I'd rather have six shots and carry two pistols and then with for a total of 12 then carry a single shot pistol with a bag full of cartridges i mean i just i just see that that single shot pistol is just not going to be reloaded fast enough it's going to be a terrible combat weapon terrible it's actually worse than what it replaced it's worse than what it replaced so the trapdoor now there were things called Hoda pistols, which was a double barrel, very powerful pistol people would carry in British. They were British. They would carry them in India um, as, they were, as they were transiting around on elephants, you know, riding in the baskets on the back of an elephant. I guess the tigers or, or other predators would jump up into the basket and you needed something really powerful to... And you're only going to get one shot or two before you were eaten, so... Uh, a Hoda pistol made a lot of sense um, for land or even sea combat a single shot pistol makes no sense so there you are but um, yeah Hoda pistols and Peter Soli for a while maybe they still do was making very both the uh, cartridge and percussion Hoda pistol uh, reproductions which um, yeah that'd be a lot of it, it would be fun Unfortunately, I think they were pretty pricey. They were they were seven eight hundred bucks for the uh, percussion ones, and uh, you know that's that's an expensive range toy there that you would you know you shoot a couple times until the novelty wears off. Because I don't think they were notorious uh, for accuracy. They were basically close range, powerful defense. So that was the uh, that was the story on those. All right, next question. Does the 30 caliber carbine have enough stopping power for military use? Uh, the, the answer is controversial, but the answer is, is equivocally yes. And it was a extremely popular weapon for years and years and years until it was just really edged out by the availability of, of more modern intermediate cartridge uh, assault rifles. So... The M1 carbine is excellent, though. It's so lightweight and good. There are stories of, hey, I, I was shooting a guy and, you know, the bullet didn't bring him down and, and we had to shoot him with something else to stop him. Uh, those those happen with every weapon. The um, Everything at one point or another gets criticized for stopping power, so I, would, I wouldn't pay too much attention to those. A carbine is, is excellent. Um, some of the ones in Korea where they, they claim that the Chinese padded clothing stopped the bullets. I don't think that's true. I think what I think is probably true is that in the cold weather and with the padded clothing, the bullet may not have opened up a, a wound channel that would immediately stop somebody. So the enemy could appear to be soaking up bullets. And that's just the way that is. You know, that's just... And... and comparatively speaking you know you put a couple of rounds into a guy and he's not stopping and then the guy next to you hits him with a burst from a Thompson and puts him down you're gonna think hey the carbine doesn't have stopping power the Thompson does so there you are you know that's that's it but the carbine very good round uh, very underappreciated now um, but a very good round but it's appreciated enough so that companies are still making copies of M1 carbines they're not cheap but they're out there. They are cheaper than the GI ones, which never thought I'd see that day. But, but it is, it is happened. And uh, 
for most people an M1 carbine is an excellent defensive firearm it really is it's not the latest it's not the most trend trendy it does it does seem to be old-fashioned because it's basically an 80 year old design now but it really works well you know there are a lot of good old designs that work well 94 Winchesters and all these other things um, there's a lot of good firearms designs that are that are older and work exceedingly well the carbine is one of them alright here's our next question and I alluded to it earlier are you a fan of CN Arsenal or CN Arsenal I guess is the, actually the catchy way they do that on YouTube <clears throat> well the answer is I, I think they have some good material it's kind of like forgotten weapons it, you know you can't watch every episode or your your mind is <laughs> you know you're being drugged down the rabbit hole of some obscure firearm that you you don't have an interest in the, the ones that you're interested in you you'll probably watch the other ones you'll say yeah thanks but no thanks so there's that aspect the other aspect is uh, I kinda like the some of the background they go into some of the and some of the changes some of some of it's okay some of it gets into way too much minutia um, talking about you know a variant that you're never gonna really run across it's it's good to have if you have a deep interest in that particular firearm but um, even if you own one of the more common examples of what they're talking about you're not going to see the earlier the earlier ones so that's the way that is um, <clears throat> what I don't like is I, I don't think the lady they have who test fires the firearms I I, I don't value her expertise I don't value um, a lot of what she says and here's the reason why she's never had a uniform on she's not a soldier um, she she's never used these things operationally she's not schooled or educated enough to understand the broader context as to why an army would use something like this um, and and here's a here's a uh, um, an example the Moisen Nagant 1891 rifle they don't like it personally I like it better than they do I, because I understand the context of why it was adopted it needed to be reliable it needed to be hard-hitting it needed to have clip loading it needed to be manufacturable and they got all those things they got all those things and it also needed to be something that was durable enough to last for potentially decades they got all those things is it the pinnacle of bolt-action rifle design no is it the most efficient bolt-action design no does it do everything that was expected of it yes and and the people who say it doesn't are people who just don't know you know that wars are not fought by people who go into gun shops pick up their favorite rifle and go out and fight it's not it's fought by people who sometimes they've never even fired a weapon or they've never fired a military style weapon and they're handed something and they get a modicum of training and, and go especially back in those days nowadays it's a little better with professional militaries obviously but um, you know conscripts in the world wars <clears throat> did not get a whole lot of rifle training especially when you're talking about um, the countries that were under severe pressure uh, for a while that was the Soviet Union uh, for a while that was Britain for a while it was Germany you know and, and Japan now we had the luxury of being able to train we also we also had the luxury of testing equipment very very extensively before it was sent to the front there were actually even you know kind of boards that various things went to so that you didn't make the mistakes that some countries made by adopting something that was not going to be up to scratch when it reached the troops in the front line so uh, you know I don't when they sit there and and especially when they ask this ask this young lady um, hey would you carry this into combat well she's never been in combat so how would you even know how would you even know 
how to make that sort of judgment. All she can say is, well, I like this or I don't like this. And those are legitimate, legitimate comments. But you also have to look at the, con the time era they were in. You know, an M1 rifle is superior in every way to a 1903 Springfield, but it wasn't around in 1903 and 1905 and World War I. And so looking at these things and comparing apples and oranges together just doesn't just doesn't make it a whole it's just not very appealing to me so I, I tend to skip those parts um, you know I mean if they're able to have a business and monetize that and do it that's great and I don't I don't see that as bad um, I don't subscribe to it or, or do the patreon thing because frankly they're not saying anything that I would <laughs> that I would really value even for five bucks a month or whatever um, <clears throat> so anyway um, that's it and the ones I refuse to watch are like the top ten rifles of World War One it's like well they have no ju no practical experience no relevant experience to base that on so so hostile away go uh, some of it some of it I like and find valuable uh, a lot of it I, I do not so that's where I sit with that Here's one that is, it was a question, it's not strictly gun related, but is the country headed for civil war? Well, frankly, I don't think that most of the American population is up for a civil war. I don't know. There is a clash of very polarized cultures going on at this point, which is usually... I think people, when they ask that question, they see that and they realize that in history, those have been the catalyst for a civil war. Here, I don't know. Well, frankly, our, our population is too wimpy. They're not going to get off Instagram and, and um, all the other nonsense, TikTok, you know. They're not going to get off of that so they can go and, and do something. There are some very, very radicalized leftists who would love it. I mean... You know what Trump was just elected. Look at that nonsense they pulled in Charlottesville. You know they just created, created an incident. They manufacture incidents. That's what they do, and we're going to be living with that for a long time until we decide that law and order is more important than weirdos expressing themselves. And so, if we can get back, if there's a law and order backlash. I think things will kind of mellow out. But until that happens, uh, it's going to be kind of a rough ride. And again, it doesn't matter if the whole country's broken out in civil war. If you're at the place where some radicalized fool is bent on committing mayhem, you may as well be in a civil war. It doesn't really matter. What matters is where your feet are standing and the situation you're in. And that's why I think most people need to be armed and need to make sure that they that they have the ability to defend themselves so that uh, frankly you know they can do that when the time comes so is the country headed towards a civil war I, I would say that right now we're in a uh, hmm maybe coining a term here as, as I'm kinda of thinking it through we may be in a cold civil war right now I, I would say that's the best way to put it and there are occasional little flare-ups here and there but you got to be ready for if the big thing just even regionally or locally kicks off uh, where you're at. Um, I see that being worse. I was, I was hoping, you know, there are theories about, you know, the federal government becoming weaker and, and the, you know, kind of dissolving into, we dissolve into four or five different republics so that people on the left coast can do whatever they want people in the Midwest can do what they want and there's some you know areas but I would say that that makes sense when you look at the map in blue and red states but when you put purple states in that's where there would be a lot of conflict and basically even a red state has got purple or blue areas in it so I'm not really sure that that's kinda how that would roll but you might see and again, I don't think this is a bad thing. You're already seeing some of it. 
You might see population displacement of people who say, I can't live in California anymore, so I'm leaving. I mean, people have been doing that on their own, but there may come a point where that becomes much, much more pronounced. And <clears throat> so we have an ideological migration of people to and from different states. I think you'll see that. I think you'll see that. Um, and you know, frankly, that's that's not a bad thing. When that happens enough, that reaches a saturation point, then we can start talking about, well, maybe we'll put up border controlled points and keep the keep the blueies out of the red states. We'll see. All right, here's the next question. Are African rifle cartridges and the guns that shoot them becoming extinct? And I think, yeah, for a long time that nobody's really excited about 375 H&H &H Magnum. Nobody's really excited about 416 Rigby anymore. Nobody's excited about 505 Gibbs, you know. All of these, um, you know, very powerful African cartridges, which were very exotic and very cool back in the 60s, 70s, and even the even part of the 80s. They've been so eclipsed in range and power by all these newer, uh, especially the extended long-range cartridges, you know, 416 Barrett and 416 Shaytac and 375 Shaytac and all the rest of them. Um, all the all the rest of these things have really taken the bloom off that. I I think the only people who it really appeals to, and frankly, they still kind of appeal to me, would be a real traditionalist who who's you know when you hold one of those things you you kind of like a lot of good firearms it transports you to a different time say back into the early 1900s where you know safaris in Africa were you know kind of a very very adventurous thing to do so you know that the safari clothes and all that would be very very much but that's such a small niche um, and it's frankly a a place that has been occupied by very well-to-do people. So um, I, I think that that's, that's a niche. You know, for, for years you've been able to go buy a CZ Safari Magnum rifle, you know, the, the, the large Mauser action rifle. You can get them in 375 and you can get them in the 416 and... Um, I think they even made a special run in 505 Gibbs. I think they, it was pretty pricey, though. I think that was five or six k. You know, that's not cheap. the The other, the the lower end ones, though, um, the base models are are still, I think, under fifteen hundred bucks. New, you know, used, you could probably get a better better deal. Uh, and you, and they're not going to be shot very much if you buy them used because ammunition, 375 H and H Magnum. I don't know what that goes for, but I'm sure it's expensive in factory loadings. 416 Rigby. The last time I checked, was I think like 175 dollars for 20 rounds. So, you know, there isn't any white box for any of that. There's no white box African practice cartridges. So if you hand load, you could probably uh, cut that down pretty dramatically. But still. Um, you know, it's uh, the other the other problem is those are heavy recoiling cartridges, and by the time people really kind of develop an interest in it, that's kind of when you're saying, I don't know that I really want heavy recoiling cartridges. So, you know, those things are 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 very niche, very traditionalist, and they're really not for general shooters. I mean, uh, they're really we're designed for hunting. And that's really where the clientele for those particular guns are. It's hunters. It's it's not people who take them to the range to show to their friends. They just don't do that. So it's a very, very uh, specialized area of endeavor. So uh, I would say that, yeah, those things, they, they might still be around, but I think even just getting empty brass for those is going to be a serious challenge. Um, there are a lot of guns that that don't have a broad appeal anymore. The getting just getting the brass is going to be hard enough. 351 Winchester being an example, and there are a lot of those guns around. It's not like 
they only manufactured a few of them they they manufactured that that gun over 50 years and uh it got government use it got all law enforcement use so um you know there are a lot of them around out there and uh, uh you just don't see the bra you don't see the components it's it's very hard to to get and there's going to be a few others that are the same way it'll be going to be just the same way and i think the african cartridges are, are going to fall into that where you might have to figure out how to make some of these which is just a joyous experience <laughs> you know usually you know one of the one of the things that i always find that's the ultimate irony is when it talks about making brass a lot of times making brass from a different cartridge from one to another the cartridge that's the parent or donor cartridge is just as rare and hard to get as the one you're making it into um, it's terrible but that's the way it is and uh, oh an example is 357 maximum going into 351 Winchester when was the last time you saw any 357 maximum brass and the answer is probably not for a long time because they made the guns for just a short period they had flame cutting issues so they kind of cut them and a lot of guys took the took the um, especially the Ruger guns I don't know who else made them but I think it was only Ruger as, a, as I'm thinking about it and they converted them to other things to other calibers so um, yeah it's a um, it's a real issue finding that brass to ch finding one rare brass to convert to another rare brass another is a 348 Winchester kind of converts into a few things and it's like when was the last time you saw one of those I think I can't remember the last time I I think I saw a 348 Winchester rifle maybe once or twice you know I mean not they're they're not all that common so the brass for them is probably going to be uncommon also so that's the uh, that's the issue it's uh, um, when brass becomes hard to find then all of a sudden it you look for the brass that can be modified into it and that becomes hard to find also okay have you heard about the Catholic nuns that have bought stock in Smith & Wesson and are suing them to stop production of AR-15 style rifles yeah, I heard that and and frankly this is why I have nothing to do with the Catholic Church um, personally I've disavowed it I am I do not consider myself a member although I was unfortunately born into it and had to go to their um, had to go to some Catholic schools um, here's my here's my deal with the Catholic Church okay and this is gonna PO a lot of people but you know you need to hear it they're hypocrites okay they're the biggest group of organized hypocrites on the planet um, they they have amassed fantastic wealth and they all they do is browbeat everybody else to share theirs with the poor okay that, that's all fine I, a lot of churches operate that way that's fine the part where I have a problem is that the clergy of the Catholic Church has had a group of serial child molesters who the church has protected and it's only been when they get caught red-handed that they that they try to do the right thing uh, a lot of times they were reassigning these guys who they knew they knew were problems and uh, covering for them you know basically giving them a fresh start and letting and and essentially when these guys were doing the same thing somewhere else they just kept reassigning them it was serial they knew it they knew it and um, now I will tell you I never experienced this I did go to I moved from a cattle ranch to the city which was a big change and I went to a Catholic from a public school to a Catholic school that was a big change and the the clergy there were were very very good people and I mean I I had I felt that they were good teachers and and all the rest of it I didn't do a lot 
and I'm telling you this, I'm not Mr. After School Activity, you know. So I didn't, I think that's where a lot of this kind of stuff was taking place. But I didn't take care of it, take part in any of it. Um, no after school stuff for me. So these guys, and then years later, and this is decades and decades later, they put out a thing, oh, were you here when Father so-and-so was here? Well, you know, if he ever, you know, did anything, let us know, that kind of stuff. And a couple of these guys were still alive. Um, I never had a class or any kind of interaction with the accused, but, um, you know, they were in the school the same time I was. I mean, you know, so I didn't like that. I didn't like the fact that, that these guys the leadership of their church had covered for these guys and put them into school where I was going to. Um, you know, that's all bad business. And so, to circle back to what we're really talking about, if these nuns really wanted to help people, I think they would pool their resources and rather than try to buy stock in Smith & Wesson and conduct a frivolous lawsuit, maybe they should police their own ranks and make sure that child molesters and all this other nonsense that goes on behind the doors of their church gets cleaned up. Maybe they need to look inward instead of outward. Um, they're hypocrites. They've, they've, it's, it's beyond me. It's beyond me. It's, Again, another sign that the, the world is crumbling around us. Um, can't do that. I mean, every once in a while they make a high-profile thing of, oh, we got rid of this bishop or this guy, and we found he was doing that. But the fact of the matter is, for years they were doing it. Years. Um, and they only come clean when they get caught. So, um, yeah, take your lawsuit and, you know, just wander away. Um, you know, they're Catholic nuns. Go back and beat the kids in Catholic grammar schools because that's kind of what you do the best. So go back and do all that nonsense. Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, and I don't know how true it is. This is just an aside. It was the... Uh, it was one of those prequels of Yellowstone where they showed the they had the uh, American Indian girls who'd been taken away from their family and put in these Catholic school which were really kind of prisons really so they could be taught you know quote the you know proper ways of doing things fit into the modern world and uh, that's pretty brutal man it was pretty brutal um, how much of that is fact and how much of that is fiction I do not know I tend to believe that a lot of it was at least dramatized fact and that that was, that was probably a pretty brutal environment that these people are the inheritors of and in my opinion responsible for I mean they, they did that they did that stuff I don't see them making out, going out and making any amends or even making statements that, that are conciliatory. So that's what I think about the nuns who are trying to sue Smith & Wesson. They ought to look at themselves um, rather than trying to deflect attention away from the bad things that their organization is doing on and trying to interrupt a legal company manufacturing a legal product for the legitimate defense, even as codified by religious teachings, of self-defense. So, there you go. Anyway, that's it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. If you have any uh, uh, questions or comments, kbmakel at aol.com. That's the email. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.